0: The 360 on Energy and Carbon, hosted by 360 Energy. Today we are joined by guest Richard Adamson. Richard is CEO of Industrial Climate Solutions, overseeing the development and commercialization of products based on the pulse-enhanced FROC technology. This platform technology intensifies processes, reduces costs, and eliminates many constraints in gas or liquid contacting in industrial applications ranging from CO2 capture and conversion to fertilization production to flue gas scrubbing in stationary and marine applications. On February 1, 2022, ICS was acquired by Baker Hughes Turbo Machinery Process Solutions. Richard has 4 decades of experience in the development, commercialization, and marketing of commercial and industrial process equipment, technologies, and business models. He was the founding president of Carbon Management Canada, a network of centers of excellence, and CMC research institutes. Before that, with Southern Research Institute in Durham, North Carolina, he helped establish the Carbon to Liquids Development Center. Now let's get into the episode with Richard. Welcome back, Dave and John. I see we're in the same room today.
1: Yeah, it's good. It's good to really prove that we We
2: exist. We (laughs) physically are, it's unbelievable. It's been, I guess, six
1: years, John, since the last time we- Six years, and this, I should have been here in March 2020, but apparently something stopped that happening. I wonder (laughs) what that was.
2: And another statistic John brought to my attention, he's been over
1: here 22 times. Times, yeah. uh, Yeah. But please don't give me a hard time on my carbon footprint for that. Yeah.
0: Well, 22 is my lucky number. So that means this episode's going to go great.
1: Okay, yeah. excellent.
0: Today, we welcome Richard Adamson, CEO of Industrial Climate Solutions. Welcome, Richard.
3: Great to be here. Nice to see you again.
0: Great to have you here. If you want to start off the episode by diving into, some context on climate change and some contributing factors to the polarization of the topic.
3: Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to start there. I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, climate change is not just a technical challenge. It's as much as anything, it's a global social and political challenge, probably more so than the technical side. And there's a lot of polarization around it. And you see very uh, often large groups of young people being very adamant about how threatened, they feel around the, the possible very negative outcomes of this crisis. And they're absolutely right to, to feel threatened. The, the threat is real. Personally, I think the potential for us to stay under the two degrees Celsius shift is technically possible, politically very hard, if achievable at all. It's it, we are, we are going to be in for a rough ride, no matter what happens. And we need to acknowledge that up front. There's a really strong tendency around the industrial side to look at this as being a threat because there's a, an opinion that the best way to solve the problem is to shut the industrial emitters down, just stop emitting, which implies that we can stop consuming. All of those services and goods can just be removed from the market without huge impact on food availability, well-being, various dimensions, and that just isn't true. We can't stop doing all of these industrial processes without a huge negative impact on on human well-being globally on the other hand there's a tendency on the industry or government policy side to say it's too expensive to respond to these things as though the baseline option of business as usual is actually a viable choice and and the reference point should not be business as usual the reference point should be We absolutely need to address the, the emissions problem, and we need to do it with minimum damage to the economy. So that really removes on the one side, removes the shut it all down position and it removes the business as usual position. So that leaves us with the middle, which says it's gotta be fixed. Now, how do we fix it? And so that's really the space that I play in. I'm not really interested in the extremes on either side. I absolutely believe this is a critical issue. It's probably the largest threat that humanity has ever faced. And we've got to do it without damaging humanity through food deprivation or creating huge deprivation in, in terms of quality of life. So anyway, I just like to start with that because I, as an as an engineer, I tend to want to focus on the problem. And like, let's figure out how to solve this problem. And it tends to quickly bypass with optimism, the uh, the acknowledgement of the seriousness of the situation. I think we have to start from that before we can start working on solutions. Anyway, I think that's an important context. Too often you either have all, all is bright, we can solve this, which is technically true, or, oh my God, the world is ending. And that's a possibility. So, so Richard, I'm so glad you've joined us. For
2: our listeners, Richard has done a couple of sessions with us in 2020. And so if you look at our, our website, you can see a couple of sessions that have been organized talking about this. But I, I think now it's really timely because I think people understand with carbon capture and storage that it's, it's something that has to be dealt with. And you're the uh, go-to person as far as we know that has this expertise. So I'm really, really pleased. So thank you so much for for joining us in this. I'm gonna start off the volley of, of questions if I could. And so the first question I have, and this
3: is for our listeners that may not be familiar, but what is carbon capture and storage? Well, it's an, it's interesting. It's a moving target in some ways. It's it's now called carbon capture utilization in storage and more commonly than, so CCUS instead of CCS. And that starts to shine a light on, I've always tended to partition it. It's there's carbon capture, and then there's what do you do with the carbon? And they're often they're bundled together, but not always. So, essentially, the carbon capture side is there's some source of CO2 that you're going to capture, often using some kind of a solvent or something. You strip the the CO2 out of out of whatever the source is, and it might be a concentrated source like an industrial source or a coal-fired power plant or something like that, or it Now there's a lot of talk about direct air capture where you're stripping the the CO2 out of the atmosphere itself, but wherever there's the capture side is you're separating the CO2 from some background collection of gases. And then on the, what do you do with it side? You might mineralize it. You might turn it into products or you might, you might store it in a geological formation one way or another. So carbon capture and storage is kind of a weird beast because you're wrapping your arms around what amounts to a chemical process and a geological storage that looks more like oil and gas production in in reverse. So I often feel uncomfortable with treating it as though it was a technology. It's really two separate processes that are married together.
2: I think it's a very important word, utilization. I'm glad you corrected or made that, reinforce that because there are, are some good things that you can do with the carbon and I think that that's a very important point that can't be missed and and, and needs to be understood by our listeners as well. The next question I have is, can you
3: describe how this technology actually works? Okay. Well, there's a, there's a few different processes. I'm going to focus on the one that's most common though. There's some interesting contenders coming up around the margins, but the front end, what I call the wet front end. Is you take a solvent that selectively likes CO2 more than any of the other, will absorb CO2 rather than the other gases in a, in a typical flue gas stream. And so you contact that liquid through an absorber column, a, a piece of equipment that makes a lot of surface area between, between the gas and the liquid that absorbs the CO2 out of the flue gas and leaves the other gases in the flue gas. And so you wind up with what's called lean solvent going in the top, It contacts the column and comes out the bottom as rich solvent. Uh, The solvent is very high levels of CO2 in it. And then you circulate it around to a regenerator that heats it up and drives the CO2 off for drying and compression, and turns the solvent back into lean and goes back to the, the capture side. So it's basically a recirculating solvent cycle where we absorb CO2 on one side, and then we regenerate the solvent and drive the CO2 off For further processing.
1: I'm going to ask, I think, what's a simple question, and it probably doesn't have a simple answer, or maybe it does. And and again, there's a whole lot of talk about whether we go for net zero, whether we go for two degrees, 1.5, whatever. And the simple question is, why do we need CCUS?
3: Well, I think I, I sort of set that up at the beginning. As long as the world needs stuff that's produced by industrial processes, we're going to have processes that some of which well, it'll take a long time to remove all emissions inherently from all of the industrial processes right S- some of them we have no solutions some of them we have a lot of built equipment like cement plants and things like that we are not just going to bulldoze them and come up with a completely novel technology to replace them with and the thing with carbon capture is you can bolt it on the back end of a lot of these processes to deal with the emissions so that the, the problem isn't the industry itself. The problem is the emissions. If you've got, if you invested hundreds of millions or billions of dollars into a, into a piece of kit that was intended to last for 30 or 40 years, shutting it down after a decade or two and, and just bulldozing it and trying again is often a very painful approach. If you can bolt some equipment on the back end and deal with the emissions and allow that plant to continue to operate for. The remainder of its life that's sometimes a more de- desirable approach but in some cases there's processes that we just don't know how to operate without emitting and so we have to we have to have this bolt-on
1: solution on the back end so what you're really saying is is that if we're looking at this as, as realists in the short to medium term we cannot eliminate the emission of co2 from certain sources and therefore we have got to capture that and do something with it. Yeah, you know, and uh,
3: there's you kind of have to think about the thing in terms of a, a narrative over decades or or the balance of the century at least of transitioning the global econ- industrial economy. And right now there's a whole bunch of stuff that's out there. And If we're going to deal with the emissions on that rapidly, capture gets us there at scale as quickly as anything, as more quickly than anything else that's available. Then there's other processes that will that may be preferable in the long term, massive build out of renewables, green hydrogen, transition of the that's going to be t- take several decades, yes, but a ton of emissions from this year remains in the atmosphere for, for a thousand years, so if we can rapidly drop our emissions from the existing emitting sources in the near term that that matters a lot. Carbon capture may turn out to be really important for the next 30, 40, maybe 50 years, and less and less so as we transition the economy over to these other inherently non-emitting processes.
1: So are you suggesting that in the short term a rapid deployment of CCUS could provide a step change in emissions?
3: Yes, but that makes it sound a little simple yeah (laughs) yeah no it's the only thing that can do the, the kind of at scale every installation or or many of the installations are in the million tons per year yeah scale and above if you sit down and work out how many solar panels or or whatever would be the equivalent a million tons a year is a lot and it can be done in a single installation however If you look at the International Energy Agency's projections for how much carbon capture needs to be installed by 2050, we have to have one of those million ton a year plants installed and operational every day from 2030 to 2050 to to achieve the two degrees Celsius. So when I say it's hard to achieve two degrees Celsius, think about the supply chains involved, Think, think about regulation and permitting, think about 365 plants a year for the next, for for two decades. That's the, the scale of, of the, the climate challenge is not something we can nibble around the edges at. I want to pick up on this and
2: it's Richard, this is based on my memory, which could be wrong here, but I, I remember when you did a session, you talked about how CCUS was required to reduce a certain percentage of carbon. And I can't recall if it was, it was required to reduce 10 or 20% of carbon. And so maybe I've, maybe I'm completely wrong here, but can you share with us what the range of how important Uh, DCUS is for this?
3: Well, there isn't a single number. Every time, every time somebody runs their models, they make slightly different assumptions, but it's in the range. It's less than 10% typically now. The more recent models are starting to say, uh, no, it's not 12%, it's, 7% Seven percent or in that range, but it's still gigatons per year level it, so it's not small but what I just heard you say the amount of plants that have to be built to get seven
1: percent it, it's massive scale but I think this mm-hmm. this speaks to the scale of the problem of emissions, doesn't it it does mm-hmm. pretty much so which yeah. you set up quite well
2: yeah I have a follow-up question and and maybe you talked about it, but
3: What are the challenges of, of the technology to do that with? So the reason I'm particularly focused on what's called the wet front end, that absorber technology is if you have ever toured one of the the big plants that are out there, that absorber sort of looks like a skyscraper in the middle of the plant. It's, it's massive, maybe 50, 50 meters tall, 60 meters tall, tens of meters on a side and it's about a third of the cost of the plant. And so the the process of getting massive quantities of flue gas in contact with with this solvent requires huge surface area and contact time which normally requires a very big package. A little plug for where our technology effort comes in is our technology and we haven't we haven't built a plant at full scale. So again, it looks like we'll be able to reduce the the size of that absorber by about five to one, which wow. is a massive, which is oh, a massive So that's the whole point here is that to me, that's, that's the biggest critical component in the process. And there's a whole bunch of uh, other issues, but fundamentally, when you come down to CCS, I talked at the beginning about c- separating capture from storage and the what are you going to do with it is the biggest barrier not every place has ideal geology for deep sequestration here in alberta we're very lucky we've got massive huge capacity for storage in in our geology here but central canada with the uh, with the canadian shield that geology is much much tougher to deal with so What are you going to do with it? Do you have a pipeline? If if there's a CO2 capture pipeline system or a, a hub arrangement, if you've got a pipeline that goes by your front gate, beautiful, just deal with the capture and, and connect to the pipeline. That doesn't, at this point, we don't have that kind of infrastructure in a lot of places in Europe, there's a heavy emphasis on shipping by marine transport. So there's a lot of focus on capture plants basically at the shoreline so that they can have a, a port that they can load ships directly from the cement plant or the waste energy plant. And then the ship then takes it to someplace convenient for deep sequestration. So there's the, what are you going to do with it is really the big, big problem in every plant and it's completely location specific.
1: Can I just come in and ask one there? Cause I, I've, I've heard, people talking about you know capture and storage and you, you get those that are scared by the, the idea that we are going to put these masses of co2 in the ground and they go what happens if it leaks what happens if it comes out and this is very much what i sometimes refer to as dinner party discussion because i don't know if you mm. get this if oh, you're in this business and you are having a meal with somebody and then you suddenly discover that you're nowhere near the expert in this area as the other five people sat round the table the first thing is where did this carbon come from in the first place
3: yeah so i mean it's been there for millions of years in those same for many of the same formations that we're injecting the co2 in so that's that's the first point but the, there's a Implicit in this is what's the mental model that somebody's bringing to the table. People think about this as though you're injecting it into some great cavern in the underground and, and somehow the cork's going to come out and we're going to have CO2 blasting out of the ground. Yeah. What we've got is really porous rock, generally speaking, a porous rock like sandstone or something like that. That's sort of more like a sponge than a cavern Yeah. and you're injecting the CO2 in it and it actually diffuses over time there's a you can only inject it so fast your rate limit is is based on how fast the the co2 can kind of percolate out through all of this rock so even if you blew open the top of the pipe somehow you just blew the cork off there's really a significant limit to how fast anything can come out so you know disperse the whole champagne bottle model of of what's going on down there secondly the the a big part of the way the injection systems work is there's a there's a huge emphasis on measurement monitoring and verification over a period of decades during injection and post-injection and very low leakage levels are detectable. And so that's, that's, so we know that it's secure if it's been down there for 30 years and we've held it tight for 30 years, it's probably good. Okay. And the, the third part that's important there is in fact the CO2 doesn't just sit there as gas. It it starts, depending on the geology, the rates are different in different formations. But it reacts with the with the rock and actually mineralizes. So over the period of century or centuries, depending on the uh, the, the rock formation, it actually winds up being bound into the rock and doesn't release at all, even if you want it to. So it's really not a big problem. It's more of a kind of a a conceptual problem when you're thinking about what's going on?
1: Yeah, it's it's in common with a lot of the things that we're discussing. People want a simple understanding and they they take certain pieces of it. And I think a lot of it depends on, shall we say where somebody's coming from, you know, you get the, shall we say the the energy efficiency fundamentalist who will go, you should just be concentrating on that and not do it you know then you wouldn't need to capture and no, well, likewise there's there's the hardliners on renewables if we were all renewable we wouldn't need to be looking at it that way but blends are no, going to be the answer aren't they in the transition absolutely
3: so the, there's going to be there, there's there's going to be, all of the above is the only way through yeah. and 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 also the focus on renewable energy As though electricity was the only problem to solve. Yes. Uh, So if you look at the scale of the renewables that are required to get there and and the speed of implementation, there's a problem there. Yeah. But there's also a whole bunch of natural gas-fired power plants that are already built, and we can't just shut them all off because we haven't got the generating capacity to back them up. We're going to have to figure out how to deal with them. Now that, that starts us into another conversation we may get to a little later around why natural gas capture is a, is particularly challenging. But the other thing is because of the rate of implementation and the, the energy density, if you will, of the, of the power plants, the only other pathway, and I was involved in a project called the deep decarbonization pathways project where we were one of 16 countries involved in this and we modeled the Canadian economy, what does it take to decarbonize the Canadian economy with the minimum, and what's the economic optimum a path forward. And it was really interesting because there was carbon capture and storage on the back end of fossil fuel plants and nuclear power. And there was no way to use the economic models to be able to say, which would win the, the small modular reactors, the projections for them. Looked like about an economic wash, but with nuclear is purely a political decision. It's not driven by economics. It's either going to be implemented because it's a policy decision, or it's not going to be implemented because it's a policy decision. It's not Mm -hmm. driven by markets. And so we'd run the models and say, well, you put in more nuclear, you reduce the amount of carbon capture off fossil fuel for power, you reduce, you eliminate nuclear and you have more carbon capture off fossil fuel, which do you want, but it, it, you couldn't, it was either or you couldn't get there with neither. Right.
1: Interesting.
0: Richard, this has been a great episode so far based on the information shared today on carbon capture utilization and storage. What is the biggest takeaway for our listeners?
3: Well, first off, just do it. I mean, we've got to get in, it. We, we've got to get past all of the haggling about, about these things. Is it, we can talk about, is it ready? We can talk about these various, the various things, but the fact is it is absolutely ready. Will it get better? Yes. Will it become more efficient? Yes. But if we improve our efficiency by 2% and we wait five years to get there, then it's going to take what, uh, a decade before we've caught up the emissions that we, waste, we allowed to happen because we were going to wait for a 2% better solution. We've got to get moving on it. We've got to get those plants built. We need to learn from experience and we need an, a ton in the year it, that goes into the atmosphere this year is going to be there hundreds of years hence. So waiting is really not an option. We've been waiting far too long.
0: You know it's so interesting hearing you say that i think it just shows the diverse opinions we have on the podcast because we do have some people that say to wait and then your first instinct is to just do it and i think it definitely shows you know where do you want to be as a company do you want to be forward thinking do you want to be the first one you know out the gate to start something like this or to use a technology like this
3: well, I think that that's a really good point. And here, here's the thing: economists use these models that show, as you learn, these learning curves that that the cost is going to go down as as the number of plants built go up. So here's something I put to you: I think that there's going to come a point where, globally, we move on to a like a war footing on on climate, where we absolutely are just pedal to the metal, we've got to do everything. You know what the problem with that is I talked about supply chains before the compressors used on these plants, the total global market for those compressors is in the dozens or maybe a hundred or so. So we're going to have to build, there's going to be on top of the existing markets, there's going to be this massive demand for those compressors. There's going to be massive demand for these other things, I think even as we learn and we get better at building the plants if we move into the level of commitment for rapid implementation we're not going to have that learning curve effect the cost is not going to come down it's going to go up the early movers are actually going to wind up having the more economic solutions because you'll be facing lead times of five years or 10 years to get your plants built out as the market surges so it's far far better to be an early mover even at the cost of a what what might look like on spreadsheets possibly a higher price the reality might not, might not bear the learning curve hypothesis out
2: so this is richard as you said at the beginning it, we just quite frankly we don't society doesn't have time like you know and i i actually feel for my kids for their families. I mean, John, myself, yourself, we've been fortunate what we've had, but and we got to get going. And, and you know, the CCUS, as you indicated is, it, it frustrates me sometimes because there's paralysis by analysis. I sometimes wonder if it's a Canadian thing. I don't know, no. it, it's, it, 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 but no. it, we do have to get going. And, I, and I, I echo your comments of what needs to be done. And I think the other thing which you, you know, you reinforced and you slightly adjusted for when I first is the utilization there. It can be utilized as well. So I think in summary, what my takeaway is we got to get at it. And to me, the other thing, truthfully, as a businessman, I think there's a huge business opportunity for organizations, you know, yourself, but other companies that actually cement companies we work with. They're going to have to get at this still plants. So anyhow, I think the session. Thank you for sharing the information you have.
1: uh, Yeah, uh, my my sort of just a little bit adding on the end is this has been one of those big technologies that certainly in the UK, the government has, and I'm going to be open here. I think they've just messed about with it. You know, they've tried to talk about providing incentive. They've tried to talk about getting people involved. And I don't want to start the the guy next to me off on this, but, you know, the, the problem When governments play around with things, they can get it wrong. There there was a study done in the UK by Dieter Helm from Oxford University, and it was government-funded, and he came out of it, and he actually said governments shouldn't pick the winning technologies. What they should do is provide a platform in which technologies can develop. And the government accepted that report and then started picking technologies. So, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, John, uh, I... I
3: once had the pleasure of having John Lofhead on my board of directors in a previous life, and he was the chief scientist for Bayes in in the UK. Yes. And got a little bit of a glimpse in what was going on there. And to me, the issue isn't a policy. You can have better policies or worse policies, but Mm -hmm. for God's sake, don't put in a policy and then yank it out from under the industry.
1: Well, that's exactly
3: Uh, what happened, isn't it? And and that's because that undermines trust and, that, yes, uh, absolutely. And, sudden, and the next time you try and put an incentive in place, everybody's going to sit in the
1: sidelines and wait to see. Uh, yeah, I think for the UK, that the, the government's backtracking on that, as you say, it leads to a massive loss of confidence in, in the big players of, you know, we could start doing this and then find that it changes. And, and that's bad, isn't it? It's a very interesting point, you know good policy, bad policy, but you need consistent policy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Well, These guest episodes are always so motivating to listen to. So if you three have time after this episode, we can start building a plant.
2: <laughs> well, let's get at it. I think we need yeah. some money though. That's the yeah, thing but, we're missing right now. Well, yeah. Who's paying for it? Yeah. We'll get that. <laughs> good there. question. Yeah. In the next session, we'll figure that out.
0: All right. Well, thank you three for your time today.
2: Thanks, pleasure. You. Thanks Richard.
0: That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn posts. See you next week.